when there is an organic open source community around technology, I think it's so fascinating to look for ways to build a commercial engine that both complements and amplifies that original creative community without co-opting it or worse, extinguishing it. One of the most interesting things to emerge from the internet is that humans will get together and self-organize to create things like this and to work on projects like this. Who wouldn't want to support that and find ways to amplify it? You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, Grant sits down with Donald Fisher, CEO and co-founder of Tidelift. The conversation begins with Donald's early career history, starting with a quick stint at Oracle before joining Inktomi and Early Search Engine as a senior consultant. As a self-admitted Linux geek, Donald's career led him to Red Hat, where he worked as a product manager on Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Both as massive proponents of open source software, the pair discussed the power of open source hobbyists and the effect on the course of entrenched commercial products. They go on to discuss how Intel and x86 architecture became the rising tide for Red Hat's success and led to the company becoming the dominant vendor in the space. The conversation shifts to Donald's stints in the world of venture capital, the founding of Tidelift, and how to best support open source creators at scale by focusing on the communities that catalyze projects. This episode should not be missed for anyone working or interested in open source. Many thanks to Donald for his time, and we hope you enjoy. All right, Donald, thank you so much for joining. Uh, glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Grant. All right, let's uh, let's dive in a little bit. How did you end up in enterprise software? Uh, grand, a grand accident uh, or a series of accidents, I guess. But I'm happy to uh, talk a little bit about the path. So uh, I started as a software developer. Actually, I started as a software enthusiast, uh, computer nerd type uh, in my youth. Studied computer science, you know, graduated and became a professional software developer. And uh, I also became in my youth and into my early career, a, uh, a real enthusiast of what was then called free software, the, the free software movement, hmm. um, now uh, kind of cleaned up for enterprise consumption as open source software. So, you know, spent a lot of my uh, energy in college on, uh, you know, compiling my Linux kernel and things like that, where I probably might have had uh, better things to, uh, to do. Um, but that's how I chose to use my time. And Early in my career as a software developer, I was the annoying Linux guy who couldn't open your Word document because it wasn't in an open format. And eventually, <laughs> uh, you know, everyone got frustrated enough that I uh, decided to go join my tribe at Red Hat, which it was my favorite company of the era. I had been a Red Hat Linux user for for years. Uh, you know, the sort of hobbyist uh, product that folks may or may not know about anymore. Uh, but you know, Red Hat really started out for. Uh, uh, technology enthusiasts uh, to use on their home systems and so on. 
so I showed up at Red Hat and uh, they said, hey, we're starting an enterprise business. Uh, do you want to work on that? And I said, what's an enterprise business? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Where had you worked prior to Red Hat? Where, where were you before that? Uh, well, I did a quick stint at uh, Oracle, uh, okay. which was uh, kind of amazing. And actually, I learned things there that I uh, uh, have been useful throughout my career, even though I was there less than a year. Wow. And then uh, I was in the Bay, I live living in the Bay Area, and I, I worked for a, a really incredible company called Ink to Me. Uh, that was a recently public uh, company. This was about 1999, uh, 2000 or so. And Ink to Me was an early search engine and also content distribution software company. So it was all building on uh, some of the research that had been done around cluster computing networks of workstations coming out of UC Berkeley, founded by Eric Brewer and a few other folks. And Eric is now you know, well-known for his role at, uh, at Google today. Um, but sure. really, really fascinating, kind of deeply academic uh, computer science world there that I, I just uh, I loved uh, hanging out around. Oh, interesting. So uh, how big was that company when you joined? A couple hundred people already. You know, this was sort of the go-go expansion days of the internet bubble. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, the uh, pre-bust, I guess, in like the late, like late 90s. Exactly, yep. It's funny, like, yeah, I mean, the, you know, I, I guess... Eric Brewer, you know, I guess his role at Google then, I mean, sort of on the infrastructure side, right? And is that, is that sort of the, the background or what's... What, yeah, what well, I mean, basically the company was about applying the idea of clustering commodity systems together to build scale applications. And the use cases were like a, a search engine that powered the back end of, you know, at the time, Yahoo and uh, MSN and things like that, hmm. you know, and then a second application to basically do like streaming video delivery for telecommunications providers. So... Really, uh, you know, fun, exciting, early internet stuff. And, you know, I essentially worked in the mailroom there and uh, felt glad to uh, be invited to the party, even in the most junior role early in my career. Interestingly, I guess that that core thesis became, did, did Ink to Me get acquired by Google or what? Ink to Me eventually ended up getting mostly acquired by Yahoo, I believe is the sequence of corporate transactions there. Oh, okay. But you really were, you know, the the Linux geek who was mainly excited to join Red Hat, and so you joined Red Hat in in what sort of role? Yeah, so I joined as a product manager, which I um, not exactly sure how it all happened because I had no um, experience uh, or you know right to be a product manager. But I kind of showed up willing and able to do whatever, you know, as a practicing software developer and. Uh, there was an opportunity. Uh, they were looking for a technical product manager for um, a new product that at the time was called Red Hat Linux Advanced Server. Hmm. But within a year or so, we it was renamed Red Hat Enterprise Linux, which is uh, what it's uh, called to today. And you know, basically, the idea was uh, we have this hobbyist operating system, Red Hat Linux, sold at the bookstore. Uh, I used to go to Barnes and Noble and buy the CDs. There was like a it was like a you know $30 version that had one manual in it. And there was the pro version that had two manuals in it for like 50 bucks. You know, get the CD so you don't have to download uh, slowly off the uh, internet at the time. Sure. And the idea of the advanced server business was, hey, maybe this could be a real commercial quality operating system to go head to head with Windows Server, with Solaris, uh, you know, sort of on the uh, Intel x86 stack be a... Uh, you know, modern Linux uh, to run on x86. And, uh, you know, the idea was seemed kind of crazy that you could do that. But the power of open source was already demonstrating that uh, this sort of hobbyist thing was in many ways already better than some of those entrenched commercial products. And then uh, I got to be part of the team that we just kind of figured it out as we went along. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So 
I mean, we, we, we have to dive in here. This is, this feels like we can get some really interesting kind of context and backstory on, you know, clearly one of the most important companies in open source, particularly in open source enterprise software. I mean, RHEL, it's the, the gold standard in many ways, set, set a lot of the business model, did, did many things. So, you know, to rewind, take us back to that time. Tell us about like, you know, what was your early team like? What were the insights? You know, what were the challenges? What did you learn along the way? Like, let's let's really revisit that because that's super interesting. Yeah. So, um, where to start? I mean, the the team uh, you mentioned was incredible. I mean, there were you know so many of the key open source or again at that time largely free software history people you know on the technical side of the business. And I'm, you know, met a number of folks there. Uh, you know, a couple of folks uh, I worked with in that era later went on to be my co-founders of my current company uh, with me. So we'll maybe talk about that in a bit. And you know, one of the interesting things that was happening when I got there to Red Hat, where you know Red Hat had been around for a while when when this uh, enterprise business got started, there was sort of an infusion of folks who had done it before, with uh, lineage going back to like a deck. Digital Equipment Corporation, and uh, which that then I guess Deck got maybe acquired by Compaq, got acquired by HP. I think maybe was the sequence there. Um, but um, these were folks who had built a commercial Unix before, okay. you know, both uh, at Deck and then HBox at HP. And so there was a really interesting moment there where there were kind of tenured folks who had done it before, and then these sort of like new wave open source hackers and they uh, combine the into this small team to make it go. And uh, it actually kind of sounds like a recipe for disaster uh, if you describe that, but somehow it worked uh, beautifully, I guess, because, you know, everyone was able to focus on the, uh, on the software and just making it, making it work. It actually re- really worked out nicely in terms of the, you know, organizational dynamics. I mean, so what was like the key thesis was like sort of, Hey, you know, this server product, I mean, one, I guess like was the, sort of consumer version of Red Hat, like remotely successful? How big was the company? Like, give us context around company and everything else at that point. Yeah, I mean, it was not the Red Hat of, you know, today that people are familiar with when it was selling the kind of low-cost, you know, consumer hobbyist product through the bookstore channel. I mean, it was actually like, there were some bizarre attributes to it. Like, it would literally be sold as a book through these bookstores and so on. And so there were issues like when we came out with a new version of the software, the bookstores would send back all the all the previous versions of it because it was treated like a prior edition of a book and like the paper would have to get, you know, discarded, shredded or something like that. So I think that was a very challenged go-to-market path. And look, the idea for the enterprise opportunity was essentially Intel-based servers presented the opportunity to have much better hardware cost dynamics than the traditional risk-based servers. You know, the original reason why, you know, transporting back was basically you, uh, you know, the enterprise platforms could take advantage of some of the scale advantages of using consumer tech in an enterprise context. And the big opportunity was businesses that had, were used to building workloads that ran on Unix needed a Unix that ran on Intel x86 architectures. Mm. And uh, interestingly, you know, at that time, there was a x86 version of Solaris, which was sort of the dominant, uh, you know, contemporaneous Unix of, of that time. Sure. But of course, uh, Sun had some strategy reasons for not deplatforming their own hardware uh, Spark uh, chips. And so it took a while for uh, Solaris x86 
um, to be released. And that created the opportunity for, you know, an independent Intel targeted Unix and uh, Linux had developed through the sort of hobbyist and Red Hat's distribution of Linux had developed through the, the hobbyist channel over the recent years. And uh, it was almost good enough to be an enterprise class operating system, just needed a little bit of uh, additional polish and work that, you know, only took another 15 years to finish. Probably never done. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's interesting. So I, I always think about, you know, the opportunities that are created for businesses often revolve around platform shifts. And it sounds like the platform shift in this regard was this idea of Intel-based servers, like, you know, x86 architecture versus kind of the more traditional risk. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, that was the, the slam dunk use case at the dawn of Red Hat's enterprise business was, today I run Oracle database on Solaris on Spark hardware, and I would like to reduce my hardware costs by running my Oracle database on something on an Intel-based server. And that something was what was up for grabs. And Red Hat successfully grabbed that in the early days and became the dominant vendor in that space. Yeah. And so, you know, that that success of x86 architecture and Intel largely became the like the rising tide that allowed Red Hat to really thrive. Yeah. I mean, that was the core business driver. There was a lot that was necessary to uh you know, grab onto that force and channel it in the right way. But yeah, that was the tailwind that created the opportunity at the beginning. Um, and, and obviously, I know we're revisiting some amount of ancient history. You haven't you haven't worked at Red Hat what in uh, thirteen years, right? So we're, we're we are we're trying your memory here, but you're doing a great job. So I appreciate it. Fond memories. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> but you know, I, I guess the the other the other part of that is like, you know, one I think maybe it was a very early podcast we did with Alex Polby. He sort of alluded to the idea that. You know, Red Hat's business model is somewhat like predicated on the idea of employ all the core contributors, or at least like a majority of the core contributors, in order to sort of have like some say in direction. And then also, there's a little bit of like Red Hat and the support model almost as like an insurance policy behind the the sort of tooling. Would you say that those that those ideas were true? You know, even 15 years ago when when you were there. Yeah, I mean, look, the Red Hat business model is like a much commented on, remarked, uh, you know, interpreted sure. thing. So, you know, I think there's a lot of subtle truths embedded in it. You know, a couple of the elements, I, I, and it is, you know, it really is a, a number of different elements that sort of combine to uh, to make it work then and now, although, you know, the world evolves. You know, so I think, you know, a couple elements of the Red Hat model, the one that most folks attach to first which I actually believe is not even the driver, not a not the most of the drive is the support part of it. The like, hey, I got this error message from Apache. What do I do? Right. Yeah, how do I change my configuration file to you know so Apache isn't complaining? You know, Red Hat did that, but there were other businesses that did that as well at the time. There was like uh, Linux Care and VA Linux and, and companies like that that were doing support for Linux. I think one of the innovative elements, a really core innovative element, um, especially, you know, reified in the form of uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux was commercial quality kind of enterprise grade release engineering and engineering process, you know, and that was Mm -hmm. one of the things that the, you know, the infusion of folks who had done this for prior generation Unixes and operating systems before was really, really necessary in the ingredients that, that made up Red Hat, you know, knowing how to do consistent 
build and QA and, you know, uh, create and manage a roadmap for features that would be added. And then there's a whole kind of, it's actually kind of another cluster of value around providing a common platform to ensure compatibility for things that you use with the operating system. And Red Hat was in a really interesting spot, especially in those days where there were a bunch of independent hardware companies building server hardware. You know, now in the modern age, that includes the clouds, but they weren't there in, in the early 2000s yet. So you would have, you know, IBM had Intel-based servers, Dell had Intel-based servers, um, Fujitsu Siemens had Intel-based servers, a lot of those. Um, so that's sort of like the southbound interface, like Red Hat's job was run consistently on all of those different platforms that are using different chipsets. You know, they're typically using the same Intel and AMD chips. And uh, there's a huge value to just having something that runs across all of those. Sure. And then there's a northbound API as well for Red Hat, which is like uh, the applications, Oracle, you know, at the time, BEA WebLogic, uh, you know, whatever the enterprise workloads are. And, uh, you know, they wanted one platform to, uh, to target. And so Red Hat was able to, to play that role. So that's like a kind of a third element. If there's like support, there's like the release engineering kind of enterprise, you know, software release and process stuff. And then a third, you know, really awesome opportunity that Red Hat had was creating a consistent platform to mediate between all these different companies and applic- building applications and all of these different companies building hardware that the operating system would run on. You know, I mean, I guess it's been well remarked that, you know, MS-DOS and Microsoft Windows had some really interesting dynamics around them. And Red Hat, I think, benefited from some of the same dynamics that sort of uh, solidified their opportunity. Yeah, it's it's great to sort of double click on, you know, what does support mean, right? Because it's like, there's there's like this idea that support is break fix, you know, oh, like we, we got an error and we need to figure out what's going on. But to your point, like supported software is actually much more than than that right it's actually like one like someone is going to consistently be responsible for like maintenance and patching and for you know continuing to enhance the product as the world changes and as the underlying you know sort of both northbound and southbound as those things change like make sure that the underlying tooling like works with it and adapts to it so like that roadmap but then this idea of commercial grade release engineering, right, around consistent builds and QA, is something that I haven't heard many folks talk about. But I think it is really interesting. Like, is that something that you would have? Did you market that? Was that like a here? This is a core feature, or was that just sort of like a expectation, like a table stakes? What, what, like, how do you think about that feature, that sort of value? Yeah, I think it's an implicit feature of enterprise software, at least of of enterprise platform software. You know, I mean, if you just think about, you know, if you've done, um, well, let's transport ourselves back into the early 2000s. Um, you know, the dominant enterprise products and, you know, service providers, companies, uh, vendors of that time, you know, if you bought Oracle database, bought the Oracle database, yes, it came with a support line that you could call to ask about the error message that you got or, you know, for help installing it or something like that. But also it came with a release roadmap and, uh, you know, specification of how long version eight, I think was contemporaneous with uh, the error that we're talking about. How long is version eight going to be maintained for and continue to get updates? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when, if you built a product against uh, Oracle database version eight, you know, your application product, 
there were a set of APIs that were held stable so that when you updated the database, your application didn't break. So Red Hat, you know, had a similar set of requirements. Again, they're kind of implicit, but, you know, maintaining secure or maintaining stable, I should say, interfaces for other things to plug into them. And by the way, that, that was like one of the core things to figure out where I give huge credit to the engineering teams and engineers at Red Hat for figuring out how to take something that had emerged through a very, you know, sort of organic, real open, early free software, open source community creation process, you know, which was Linux and the, you know, uh, components of the Linux distribution, the user land and, and all of that, and basically match it to a world where people are expecting things like long term, stable APIs to build their applications against and deploy. And it was, you know, it was really hard to do things like, you know, one of the things that that Red Hat Enterprise Linux did early, and it was extremely hard and continues to be hard today is providing guarantees around, you know, stable APIs to the Linux kernel. Sometimes it required going and redoing work or taking work from, you know, the most recent releases and transplanting that back into an older version of the Linux kernel that still needed organization still needed to rely on without breaking any of the the symbols or compatibility. Um, it's really hard stuff. And so that I think is, to me, that's so, sort of the undersung element of the Red Hat product model, I might call it. So it's not really a business model, it's but it's part of the product value received. Um, and I've always been fascinated by that and came back to that element of it uh, later in my career because uh, particularly powerful, I think, and important. Yeah. The one thing that must have been challenging for, for Red Hat is a lot of open source projects today, the uh, creator, because if there is a commercial entity, the, the, it gets built around the creator, right? You know, so HashiCorp is a recent example, right? Like, you know, Mitchell and Armand created these projects. They then became commercial. They built a company around it. And they kind of own a lot of it. Or, you know, you, you think about the successful model of, of, Kubernetes, which is more, in, or Apache, these kind of a community-based pieces. And Linux has Linux Foundation, clearly, which, you know, even, you know, drives a lot of these things. But, like, that model probably wasn't nearly as baked out, especially when you were kind of starting, right? And, and the sort of Linus relationship with, with Linux must have been unique and sort of interesting as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a different model. Back then, and I think it actually required a level of helpful humility that has served Red Hat well, you know, over the years. Yeah, to figure out how to participate, how to join and participate and engage with existing communities that had arisen for all kinds of different reasons. And again, remember, like in the early days of you know Red Hat's enterprise business was also the early days of the phrase open source. Right before that a lot of the motivation for these things to exist was, you know, in some cases, a, a political motivation, right, about beliefs of, uh, you know, that the software, especially core system software should be free software, you know, free as in freedom, um, and should be compatible with, uh, should adhere to, you know, like the four freedoms that are still part of the open source definition. And so, you know, I think it's really impressive in retrospect that a, company was able to get into that, wade into that world in a constructive way, mm-hmm. engage with those communities that maybe had started for other reasons to adapt the technology to new use cases like 
you know, big companies and governments running uh, their enterprise workloads that were never imagined. I don't. Th- I mean, they clearly weren't. If you look back at Linus's early, his first uh, famous first uh, email post, just a hobby, uh, or or listserv post, starting something just a hobby, not nothing serious. You know, it's 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 pretty remarkable that that Red Hat was able to pioneer that model of of partnering with those things. And that, yeah. I, one of the things I took away from that personally was I've since looked for ways to repeat elements of that in the sense of when there is an organic open source community around technology, I think it's so fascinating to look for ways to build a commercial engine that both complements and amplifies that original creative community without co-opting it or worse, extinguishing it, right? Mm. But it's something that's additive that basically like, you know, Mm-hmm. results in a net increase of, of energy and productivity and creativity in the open source ecosystem, whichever, you know, sub ecosystem that might be. Yeah. I mean, what are, are there some ways that you found to be successful in doing that? Yeah. Well, I mean, some of this gets into, you know, what, what the models that we're um, applying now with, with Tidelift with my current venture, but, you know, again, I, I think there's a qualitative difference in the patterns that you see between open source projects and communities that were born for expressly commercial purposes and those that were born you know for in the sense of like being a product an open source technology that was created to you know be a company or a product versus those that arose more organically through a set of collaborators you know, not to say that they, they weren't being used in a professional way or something like that, but you know that the the actual open source project or community did not have an overt commercial intent to start with. And I think there's lots that sort of fit, you know, our mix. Mm-hmm. You know, where there's uh, up front there's a commercial intent from the originator of the project or the originators of the project that then you know a community forms around. Sometimes though, and I think even more interesting are the cases where it's. It's more the community forms, a community of users form and create something. And then there's an opportunity for a commercial element to be built alongside of it. Mm. But that needs to be done with care and discretion. Yeah, that's a great point. And Red Hat, just to square the circle, is really an example of the latter for sure. I mean, that stuff, the, the key projects existed a priori. Right. And then Red Hat figured out a way to constructively engage with them to cause them to meet these enterprise standards that were necessary. And that was a great thing for Red Hat, but it was also a great thing for those open source communities that Red Hat participated in to do it. Yeah, I would say clearly, you know, Red Hat's impact on the open source sort of ecosystem, even in the projects that it's not directly impacted, has been dramatic, right? Because as a as a model that others follow, as an example of like how to build a great business that is complementary to an amazing open source community. So, you know, it's oftentimes the total economic impact of a company like that that's doing something in a fairly unique way, the largest impact isn't even the direct impact that it creates, but rather the impact that it, the example that it sets and then in these sort of countless others who are inspired by that to actually create their own uh, sort of interpretation and, and apply it somewhere else. Agreed. Yeah. So yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, I obviously I want to spend a ton of time on Tide Lift in, here in a, in a bit, but let's just dip into, you know, went to the dark side for a little bit, right? So you, you joined up, with some venture funds, likely still spending a lot of time, you know, in the enterprise and open source space. But to talk about, you know, some of those experiences there, because I think you were 
I mean, that was nearly a decade of, you know, in, inside of large uh, venture funds. So, yeah. So I, I, I took a weird career detour and ended up, as you said, working as a, an early stage investor at a couple of venture capital firms. Actually, the the first firm I worked for was uh, was Greylock, which had been the Series A investor in Red Hat. So that's how I had gotten to know some some folks over there. Oh, okay, interesting. I didn't know that actually. Yeah, and uh, so so that was great. And I, you know, again, like common occurrence in my career has been showing up not knowing anything about the job uh, about to do. Uh, so just like I didn't know anything about how to be a product manager uh, when I showed up at Red Hat, didn't know anything about uh, venture capital really. When I showed up at Greylock, so you know it was great to learn the business there from some of the best practitioners ever, uh, with historic you know investments and returns during that period. And then uh, I uh, uh, spent another number of years, almost five years, at General Catalyst, another you know tier one VC firm. And at, at General Catalyst, I was uh, really focused on pursuing this interest around open source communities and finding commercial opportunities to either support existing companies or even create new companies to amplify open source projects and open source community ecosystems. And I just, I'm so thankful for both my partners who indulged that uh, (laughs) appetite for what at the time was not a very, you know, popular thesis, not a hot market. And, but also especially the, the entrepreneurs that I was able to work with during, during that time. And I, and I got a chance to, um, you know, participate in a number of uh, investments and serve on the boards of a number of open source companies. You know, a couple examples would be um, Anaconda, uh, originally called Continuum Analytics, is a company in the uh, kind of centered on the the Python data science ecosystem. So, really amazing to work with. Uh, you know, Travis Oliphant and uh, Peter Wang, the two founders there, from a relatively early stage. I mean, Travis, who I love and I think is one of the greatest uh, open source creators of the open source era. I mean, he literally sat down and wrote what is now NumPy and SciPy, you know, as an individual creator spark of genius. And then Hmm. that led to a whole ecosystem that is now the Python data science ecosystem. And then that created the opportunity for Anaconda, the company to, again, amplify, you know, reinforce, bring more energy um, and capability to that ecosystem. So that was super fun to work on. Worked with some, some really great entrepreneurs building a um, uh, what was initially a mobile app development and now is a cross-platform app development platform called Ionic. So uh, really great company, amazing entrepreneurs there. Um, again, you know, Max Lynch, the uh, founder CEO there, mm, sure. original author, instigator of the project, um, but a huge community that has grown around that in that world. And then a third one that, you know, has been really uh, gratifying to work to support over the years is uh, Julia computing around a novel language, uh, which is hard, hard to do, hard to birth a new uh, programming language and uh, ecosystem around it. And Julia is really focused on, you know, what some folks call technical computing, like, uh, you know, scientific computing use cases, now kind of blending into, you know, AI and ML world. And, you know, again, was uh, privileged to work with the, the founders there, Viral Shah and his uh, co-founders, Jeff and, um, Kenno and uh, Professor Edelman from from MIT to help stand up the business around that, which is now great going concern uh, business, uh, really innovating in a community that needs new tools to accomplish important things for society. Yeah, those are. I mean, those are all three you know incredible companies, and and you're still actually are you still on the board of of 
two of them maybe? Yeah, I have been able to, one of the nice things is even after, uh, you know, stepping out of the VC role to start Tidelift, uh, which we'll talk about in a bit, I have been able to continue supporting some of those entrepreneurs as a, as a director. Oh, that's great. Which is a great perspective to bring to my own business actually as well, because you learn a lot of things. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Do you stay on in like a still representing the preferred or do you kind of take a different seat in that world? Yeah, in these cases, I'm I'm still representing the original uh, the firm that made the original investment. Cool. Yeah, I guess uh, maybe because you didn't go to another venture fund, it's like still a, a solid relationship. You can do that, and I think, and even when we you know we get into into Tidelift here, the general catalyst write one of your first checks. Is that right? Yes, indeed. Uh, I'm glad to say yeah. uh, my, uh, my my partners uh, backed me with a crazy idea. Uh, the call was coming from inside the house, as they say in the horror movies. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So let's let's get into tide lift. I mean, so I think we've set some really great context around you know how you've had a very long career and a ton of experience with open source and commercial open source, and uh, you've seen this evolve. And I mean, really, you were like at the the earliest sort of stages of what the kind of commercial open source enterprise software really looks like, you know, and so now, now we have that context and it's, it seems to, to me, I have a little context on Tidelift. It seems pretty obvious as to where you, where you were inspired, but like, let's, let's tie it all together. Tell us about, you know, sort of the founding days of Tidelift and what, what made you decide it was time to, to leave the cushy job as a venture capitalist to, uh, to struggle as a, you know, as an entrepreneur. Yeah, happy to do it. So um, it, it does follow somewhat linearly out of this uh, set of interests around open source technologies and, and specifically the, the human communities around those technologies. But also it stems from some of the, you know, elements that we were talking about, like what were the ingredients of the product model mm. at Red Hat and subsequent, you know, commercial open source companies. And so, you know, one of the things that became very clear to me as I was looking at investing in net new companies that were being started around open source projects is that there are certainly some companies that fit that model, some projects that have that obvious opportunity around them, right? So you can think of companies like uh, Confluence around Apache Kafka and that ecosystem, or, you know, a couple of the companies that I I already mentioned that I um, was uh, privileged to be involved in. But most open source projects do not fit that model. They're never going to pass that test that this makes sense to start a series A, make a series A uh, multi-million dollar investment in starting a company around this open source project. And the part that really you know, captured my interest was all of the class of open source projects that are used very widely by almost every large organization, but don't make sense to be a company of their own. So, you know, specifically, you know, talking about the libraries and frameworks that are used in application development. Um, and there's a very kind of broad eclectic mix of these that comprise actually like the modern application development platform. You know, you're talking about packages across programming languages like JavaScript uh, and Java, PHP, Ruby, Python.net. Every one of those has web frameworks, UI frameworks, but also parser libraries and string manipulation libraries and all of these things. And we all rely on those. Every modern application development team relies on those. But it probably, I mean, it just clearly doesn't make sense to start a Series A-backed VC company around every string parsing library for a lot of good reasons, right? But it's like a paradox. We, we depend on this stuff. It needs to work. And, you know, we, we sort of 
at the beginning, mostly theorized that really bad things could happen to users of these packages if they weren't validated or supported to meet certain standards, the kinds of things that Red Hat did in that release engineering kind of, uh, you know, um, body of work for Linux in, in, in yesteryear. And yet, how can we do it? And, you know, I got to talking about this with a couple of uh, gentlemen who, who wound up being becoming my co-founders at Tidelift. Um, so, for example, Havoc Pennington, who was a co-creator of the um, GNOME project and the GNOME Foundation. That's the, the UI for, for Linux, UI layer for, for Linux, um, and a collaborator back at, at Red Hat. Um, Jeremy Katz, a uh, core Red Hat engineer who did a lot of the work on the um, installer and package manager for the Linux distribution, then went on to make another a number of other really important contributions. He was uh, led the engineering team at Stackdriver that, that was sold to Google. It's now the sort of monitoring front end of Google Cloud. And then Louis Villa, who is uh, known to a lot of folks as one of the few world-renowned experts on open source law and licensing. Actually, Louis drafted the Mozilla public license um, version two. That's the version that's in use when he was uh, working with Mozilla. So I started talking to folks like this and saying, how can we resolve this paradox? Like one question is like, why don't some of the existing vendors just run up the stack and cover those cover those packages? They're used. It would be valuable for organizations to have assurances around those. And then just like, also, how are we going to support these open source maintainers who are in a pretty strange state right now where they have, you know, millions of people, but also these like global corporations and governments depending on their work. And, you know, there's lots of good reasons why open source creators show up to do that. And when it gets to scale, a lot of it starts to become things like uh, impact, you know, knowing that they're having a really positive impact through their creativity and their work on the world. But then there's these like obligations that kind of start creeping in like, okay, now that I've got a million users of my library, wait a minute, I'm getting all these messages and people complaining about bugs in it. Do I have an obligation to these people to do this, uh, to fix these problems? Do I have an obligation to do enterprise grade release engineering around it? It seems like an unsolved question. And so the idea that we came up with was, you know, could we kind of take a page out of some of the then contemporaneous kind of modern business models around uh, gig economy businesses like Uber and Lyft and uh, Airbnb, you know, it almost kind of fit what was actually going on around and, and, and what is actually going on around open source communities where there's this diffuse network of individuals who are creating this really valuable set of capabilities, right? In this case, open source projects. They're already doing something. They're causing the software to exist to some degree. Maybe they're not doing all of the kind of boring enterprise release engineering work that big companies who use that stuff might want them to do. How could we give them a reason to do it? And so we sort of adopted the business model of, you know, working with these open source maintainers on a fractional basis, agreeing on some standards that we want those software packages to meet that are fairly universal, right? Like mapping what open source vulnerabilities are in it, having a security response policy, a responsible disclosure policy for security vulnerabilities, identifying what the license is for the packages, you know, providing some signal around, is this actively maintained? Is this deprecated or out of, out of maintenance? We ask them to do that. We pay them on a fractional basis. It's kind of a side hustle for the vast majority of the maintainers that we work with. And it just gives them a for one thing, it gives them a sort of reason and excuse to bring their packages up to a, a, a standard. And then it also, honestly, like recognizes <laughs> and demonstrates appreciation to these folks for creating this thing in the first place and then sticking with it when everybody on the internet starts complaining about how it didn't work on their Commodore 64 or when they used it in this bizarre combination. It just seemed like a good idea. So that, that was the original kind of idea. 
I think it, to ground it in our earlier conversation, it comes back to some of those. We focus on, if you look at the Red Hat Enterprise Linux product model that we talked about, we focus on that release engineering portion of it. That's really an interesting opportunity around these, these open source libraries. And it's been, you know, fortunately and unfortunately demonstrated through some recent events, the actual value of, of uh, having a plan together and having some proactive uh, tools and process around this class of libraries. Cool. Yeah. I mean, so clearly what we're, you're referring to there is the maybe the biggest security bug that anyone has seen in some number of years with the, the log4j issues, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so, so talk about that. Like, it's, it's probably a really good way for folks to sort of get a concrete example of like the thing that you just described a little bit. You know, like, like, let's talk through details of like how you know, Tidelift could have helped or what could have happened or, you know, what maybe you'll do in the future and, and what the problem is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of amazing when this, the, you know, arcane world of open source software and, you know, release engi- enterprise release engineering kind of, uh, you know, jargon like this breaks through into the mainstream world. I, I just, I'm looking at, uh, you know, the day that we're recording this podcast, on the front page of the Washington Post is an article, the most serious security breach ever is unfolding right now. Here's what you need to know. You know, so it's pretty, you know, yeah. it doesn't always happen, but it, it, I think it, it really demonstrates the point that companies rely on this universe of open source packages, especially for application development, not just as sort of operating systems, but the building blocks of applications. Governments rely on it. Society relies on it, right? Like sure. when... When this uh, log4j vulnerability broke about a week before we're uh, we're recording here, several large parts of the Canadian government took their systems offline, like including, I believe, the Canadian Revenue uh, Agency, uh, the equivalent of the U.S. IRS, was offline. Many of their services were offline for a number of days while they tried to respond to log4j. So it, it ends up having you know real scale implications. The qualities and uh, and standards that these open source packages have and meet. And, you know, log4j, the, the package that's, you know, is, is at the heart of this conversation around this vulnerability, I think it's a perfect example. In fact, I've often, you know, used log4j as a motivating example of the kind of package that needs, we need to have a better solution for as a industry and as a society, you know, it's like... Even before this issue? Even before this issue, right? Because it's like, oh, a wow. work, it's a workaday package, you know, it's kind of like low profile, nobody's starting a log4j VC backed company, company. right? <laughs> yeah. But like almost every Java app, we've, and we've seen it verified now, almost every, you know, enterprise Java application and many things you wouldn't expect incorporate log4j to do this sort of important, but again, kind of like, you know, work a day task, writing log lines to a log file or, or, or log appender. And it demonstrates the the fact that when you have an application that's built out of not just log4j, but hundreds or thousands of things like log4j, there's an asymmetric risk. If anything you know, goes wrong in a number of different ways with any of those packages, it can have a really, really huge impact on the organization that's using it, right? So in the case of security vulnerabilities, as we're seeing with log4j, if your organization is using that and kind of not paying attention to where you're using it and you know what version of it that you're using you could be vulnerable to in this case you know arbitrary remote code expo- uh, execution 
on your system could be used to steal customer data, um, worse, more creative things, you know, change data, um, you know, uh, exfiltrate information. But there's other things that can go wrong that present asymmetric risk as well, right? So if you're, say, you're a big, a large organization and you're using, again, most uh, modern application, like a modern web application will typically have hundreds or, or you know, even sometimes thousands of uh, package dependencies. If uh, one or a couple of those have a sort of licensing ambiguity around them, open source licensing ambiguity could open up that company that, you know, looks like it has deep pockets to, you know, lawsuits, even if they're scurrilous lawsuits or sort of, uh, you know, copyright troll kind of lawsuits, it's a, it's a pain in the neck, right? And it's a, it's a, it's a loss of um, time and energy and ultimately money to organizations to have to deal with that. And then, you know, the most pernicious, I think, is when organizations are relying on, on these um, open source components that, again, were put out there by like, generous people out of the goodness of their hearts to, for other folks to build on. But then if, if you end up depending on one of these packages in a critical piece of your business or organization, and it sort of goes out of maintenance or uh, you know is no longer maintained, you have this form of technical debt that could really impair you in the future, right? And uh, it tends to come up that that sort of lack of proactive maintenance tends to come up in really awkward times. Like a good example right now would be in this log4j vulnerability, many organizations in going to respond to that are finding, oh, actually, there's a bunch of interrelated things now that are getting dragged into the remediation. So, you know, for example, I believe specifically the initial fix to log4j that was shipped requires running on Java 8. And many organizations, you know, subset, minority, but many organizations still had workloads running on Java 7. So now the Patching of log4j involves a much bigger set of activities and stirring of a hornet's nest that involves, you know, upgrading to a major new version with compatibility issues to mitigate of your core programming language. So those are the those are the kinds of you know elements that we're looking to provide new solutions for packages like log4j and the thousands of others that organizations that build modern software rely on. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, sort of my understanding of the broader problem is like basically modern application development is built on the premise of like somewhat importing other code, right? Which yeah. you import other code as libraries. And those libraries, challengingly enough, also are built on other libraries. And so it ends up being, you might think you're using two, you know, libraries, but each of those other libraries are using 50. So, you know, when really you're adding two, you think you're actually adding 102. And so, and, and it's sort of downstream, you know, this inheritance ends up being a major challenge. You know, part of it is, um, I mean, I'll kind of describe it as technical debt in the sense that like, it's a shortcut to get functionality faster when you leverage things that other people have done, right? Like the reusability and the like, tooling around software development is part of what allows us to go so fast and to like build world changing things because like you know hey you don't have to like redo all that work it's already been done and somebody open sourced it and you can use it the challenge there is like clearly when there's a problem which turns out sometimes software has bugs sure does but when that happens <laughs> it's like you know, you have to update the package. Well, then like all your packages have to update their packages and like all, all the things that need to happen. And 
you know, so this is somewhat part of the overall like software supply chain conversation, right? There's also challenges in software supply chain, you know, recently, maybe it was a year ago with uh, SolarWinds. That was a bit of a different thing. That was like an actual, you know, malicious actor who was, you know, injecting like malicious Apple your code into, into a, a software distribution. Um, so this is different. This is just a bug. It's like, but you know, I mean, I guess in a sense, but it's being weaponized. It's being weaponized, right? Yeah. Same thing, right? So it's like, uh, it's like, uh, it doesn't matter if you know. And, I mean, like, I'm not at all saying that this bug was intentional, but like, you know, if it if someone intentionally wrote this in, then it would have been malicious code, and it, it, it's in there the same way, no matter what. And it's you know, and so these backdoors, other things that happen, happen in software, and it's a big problem that. One, most people aren't even aware of that it exists, right? And then the solutions are complicated. So t- talk about like what, you know, what is Tidelift's sort of position on the solution? Like how are you, you know, helping? I, I'm going to guess that you're not like, oh yeah, we clearly solved this problem for everybody, you know, today. It's kind of like it has to be part of a, you know, hey, this is a path towards a solution. This is not, you know, this is not the be all end all, but this is like we need something better than what we're doing today. So you talk about what that is. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, maybe just uh, before before I get into that, I, I do want to just point out that as far as all evidence that I've seen there, the um, log4j vulnerability is unintentionally present. In fact, it's there in service of this, like, you know, actually people complaining on the internet saying, please leave this turned on, this obscure legacy mode uh, interface interface is actually the, the cause of it. And I, I just want to Make sure that we honor the log4j maintainers. They are doing God's work and they're doing great work. And there's this, nothing, no, no, no fault to them. But this is a podcast and the importance of conspiracy <laughs> theories on podcasts. We can't, if we don't Maybe. do our part, then what are we, are we really doing a podcast? I won't, I won't sign up for that part. But okay, so how are we going to make it better? Like, I, I think this is the, so actually it's, it's easy to look at this landscape and just get paralyzed and say, where do we even start, right? Like, we're, wait, we're depending on thousands of things that are just kind of on the internet. Like, any of them could go bad and could be, you know, have some unintended consequences like this. How are we going to get started? So, and I think that's the most common response is like, back away slowly. For yeah, people don't want to talk about it. it. Honestly, yeah. I've been out there. Look, I've been out there for the last, you know, either 20 years or five years, depending where you start counting, <laughs> asking this question to people. What are you going to, what are you doing to, you know, head off? something like log4j and people don't like to talk about it right it's kind of like talking about life insurance uh the answer is not letting you talk to their ceo you know (laughs) maybe maybe so what tools could we could we approach so it's software isn't new right we've had software before we've had commercial software before when it didn't originate on open on, on in open source communities or with you know independent creators on the internet how did it work um you know when it all originated you know look at microsoft products in the late 1990s they were, you know, almost entirely or majority written by Microsoft engineers sitting on the Microsoft campus in Redmond or wherever. Microsoft had some standards that they ensured that that software met, right? And so, for example, there would be, I mean, it wasn't like Microsoft products or any software company had bug-free software, right? It's not like Red Hat did that for Linux. They didn't have a version of Linux that didn't have any bugs. They just had a process and systems in place to deal with the bugs with clarity on an urgent timeline and, and, and have a way to, to deal with them, right? So what does it require? It requires having some, agreeing on some standards, some basic standards that to start with that software should meet, and then having a process and tools in place so that the folks who are laying hands on that software 
verify that it meets those standards or cause it to meet those standards. So, you know, with Tidelift, one of the things that we do is we we create these direct economic and business process relationships with the original open source creators or the current maintainers. And we give them tools and a standard set of processes to follow to ensure that the software meets objective kind of hygiene level standards, right? So an example standard that we want the software to meet that our customers are largely interested in is there is a version of the package that does not have a known security vulnerability in it, right? It's like, how, like in, in programmer speak, this is an invariant that you want to uh, maintain, right? And so, you know, uh, it involves both looking at all the previous vulnerabilities that have been out there, marking which versions of which packages that they apply to. Um, so you have the history, but then it's also how are you going to restore that invariant when it becomes breached, right? When there's a new security vulnerability, first of all, who's going to look at it? How are we going to tell people responsibly? It's called responsible disclosure, like, you know, kind of letting vendors know so that they can be patched, have as much of a heads up as possible a priori. So that's not just free fall zero day mode like we were in with Log4J a week ago. And then also things like, you know, what are the secure coding practices that we're going to have? What are the system security practices we're going to have? Basic things, using two-factor authentication on all of the different systems like your um, source code collaboration tool like GitHub or or GitLab, your um, package manager or package distribution system like NPM or Maven Central in the case of uh, the Java ecosystem. Just making sure that there's, you know, objectively mature software development practices being used there. Then there's aspects of it are around documentation, right? Like with the licensing question, we need to get root source truth around like, what is the license of this? And then we need to put it into a machine readable format. And we have to put some metadata there to say like, not just that it looks like this has the Apache license, but this has the Apache license because this person is testifying that they wrote it and they gave it the Apache uh, license. Very, very different, different situations, right? Mm. And then again, with those, uh, you know, traditional commercial software products through the ages, they've also made promises about the future of the software. We will maintain this release stream until this date so you can kind of plan ahead. And that provides a um, way for organizations to avoid, if they use that information well, avoid some of those technical debt traps that we were talking about where you get painted into a quarter needing to upgrade your operating system version because there was a vulnerability in one of the thousand of packages that you use and that's the only fix that's available. So we're basically just going back to history, to the archives and saying, how has this problem been solved before? How can we transpose that set of solutions to this new world where it's not a bunch of employees on a corporate campus full of cafes and you know shady spots and and trees. It's a bunch of people distributed on the internet collaborating on, around this stuff. And Tidelift with our business model, we're able to work with those open source maintainers to bring those packages up to meet those standards. But there's a second part to it, which is how that value gets received. And that's the second half of Tidelift. Great. Let's go into that. So the way that organizations want to consume that is they don't want to care about all of those issues, right? Like, And you can actually contrast it to the way that organizations that are doing something around their open source software supply chain security today, typically they're using a mix of tools that are sort of scanners, looking for issues, kind of uh, comparing against a, a database of known security vulnerabilities against uh, package versions, for example. And you know who is typically operating those tools? It's the application development team. So now you're responsible for both building your application, maybe compare that to 
a home builder building a house, but you're also responsible for verifying the moisture content of the lumber that's coming to the job site and also the you know, um, that the mixing is being done right on the concrete that's going into the foundation. It's kind of on you to verify um, that there's, you know, the right kind of sand is going in there. It's just not a realistic or practical way to approach it is to put it all on the, the application development teams to administer all of these aspects of complex trivia around their open source components. So what organizations really want is a place to go to get software building blocks that they can use to build their applications that already meet whatever standards the organization needs. And there's some really good examples in industry of companies that do this super well, that have written publicly about their models. Like Google is one of them where there's a, you know, the Google has this famous internal mono repo. And one of the features of Google's mono repo is there's a third party portion of it where there's a set of curated open source, third party open source packages and if you're an internal Google developer, you can build your search engine, maps widget, whatever it is, using those components. And you don't have to go and verify that the license is going to meet Google's rules or that it's security vulnerabilities, uh, whether it has security vulnerabilities. Somebody's already done that in a central location for you. Right. So Tidelift, you know, the second part of our business, aside from working with the maintainers to make sure these packages meet these standards or verify that they meet these standards, is a set of tools just like that that any organization can buy as a service to get their repository of vetted open source components that they know meet, meet these standards. And again, the reason we know they meet these standards is we went and got the open source creators and maintainers into the loop to help us figure it out. So that's how we kind of provide the whole value to both sides of the equation. The organizations and companies that build with open source receive it through this set of tools and process that that, that is the, the type of commercial offering, and then also provide value to these open source maintainers, partially in the form of paying them <laughs> money, <Sure. laughs> finally, uh, for the work that they do, but also supporting tools and processes to help them with some of these security issues and, uh, you know, licensing our uh, Arcana and all of that kind of stuff. That's, a, that's an amazing overview. And in sort of like a Red Hat for the long tail kind of concept, right? It's like all these different things that are out there. Red Hat's only going to cover like the sort of like most commonly used really like products. Uh, and what you're saying is like, hey, we need a way to, to get to the other, you know, 100,000, you know, libraries components that are out there being used. Um, and that model, it's like it doesn't make sense for an organization and a large company to try to like, you know, tip every... Uh, project that they use, they can pay into a central kind of service that gives them some tooling and then also have some percentage of that sort of like redistributed back into the into the ecosystem of builders. Yeah, you got it. I mean, the, the only thing I might contest is the long tail part, which is, you know, people say that a lot, but it's... Um, the medium... The, <laughs> I, I, it's like the shoulders of the curve, you know, yeah, like sure. if you look at the total yeah. number of, of all of the open source lines of code that a typical organization uses... If you bought every commercial, pre-existing commercial product, you bought Red Hat and Confluent and every managed service, you know, you would get maybe, you'd cover maybe 10% of your open source code if you bought everything. So it's like, yeah. it's actually most of it. And that's one of the exciting things about the the opportunity and challenging things about the scale of it is how do we address the rest of that stuff that, again, we're already using, like these financial services companies, governments, they're already using this stuff. They just don't have a plan. And, you know, when things like log for shell happen, yeah, it kind of forces the issue. 
Yeah, the uh, yeah, the, that's a good point. The the shoulders through tail of the there you go. <laughs> of, of the entire distribution. <laughs> and so, one, I guess, like, tell us a bit, like, how's it going? What's the you know status of the company, customers, like, you know, all, all those kind of things. So we get look at a little context. Yeah, it's going really well. I mean, it is it's a heavy lift. It's been a heavy lift to get this going because it um you know back back to business models. This is a version of a two sided marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about old world things like eBay or, or, or whatever, you got to have some inventory on the shelves in order to be able to service customers. And so, mm-hmm. you know, a, a big task for us and one where there was a lot of opinions expressed about how achievable it, it would be at the outset was signing up open source maintainers to be part of this, to basically provide the most important ingredient of this solution that I'm describing, which is the uh, verified open source packages. And a lot of folks said things like, you know, bringing money into the equation is going to ruin the vibe and people are going to be offended if you offer to pay the money for their open source stuff. And I just, I, you know, my, the experiences that we talked about at the you know, start of this conversation at Red Hat were not confirmatory uh, towards that. So I, you know, I sort of had a perspective that that wouldn't be the case. And we had a tremendous response from open source maintainers when we approached them and sort of explain our model and, you know, how we want them to be part of it and what we're asking them to do and what we're not asking them to do. You know, we've had a great response. And so we're working with, you know, the maintainers of thousands of these projects now. Um, and we bring them together in this, what we call the Tidelift catalog, this sort of uh, universe of packages that meet this standard. And, you know, now that we have thousands of uh, packages covered there, that's a really compelling offering for organizations. And where we have found the organizations where we have found the most aggressive interest and early adoption are big companies with lots of application developers in regulated industries. So, you know, financial services, healthcare, life sciences, and especially government. And a lot of the government stuff that's been happening uh, recently is driven by, you know, you referenced SolarWinds, the breach that happened about a year ago this time, or that broke, uh, the news broke about a year ago this time. Mm -hmm. The U.S. federal government is intentionally trying to use its buying power to level up the security discipline across the software industry and the technology industry in the, in the United States. And so, sure. you know, there's been a number of important events motivated by the federal government. There was a White House executive order on cybersecurity in May that um, instructed, um, directed a number of uh, agencies to create standards and uh, policies around this stuff. There's a requirement for organizations that do business with the federal government to supply what's called a software bill of materials. It's the ingredients list. Mm-hmm. You know, what went into what were, were those uh, building blocks that went into your application and also to make affirmative assurances around what security practices went into the creation of that product and into those ingredients. Those are really hard things for people to do when they're just winging it to even have the list. Most organizations are challenged to build the list of what's going into their software, much less to testify that it's being it meets certain security standards. That's a really interesting opportunity for Tidelift and our, you know, partnered open source maintainers to come together with organizations that need to answer these questions and need to, you know, meet these standards to get it done together in a way that benefits everybody. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. I think you know, there's there's definitely like sort of echoes of replicated that I see in in your business as well, which I love. You know, because like we we also run somewhat a two-sided marketplace. We're primarily focused just on the the vendor side, right? So helping software vendors distribute their products into these large 
enterprise environments. We don't work directly with the large enterprises. We think of ourselves as like B to B to E in that sense. Yeah. But ultimately, our software, like the you know, the tooling that we have, the administrative tooling, is really all used by the corporate IT admin who's administering these applications. So. And really easy to get started, right, Grant? I mean, I, I know uh, it's, it was effortless to get replicated off the ground and going with its two-sided marketplace, is what I remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's like when I was thinking about your business, I was like, man, this is like maybe a harder business to start than replicated was. I was like that. And that's like, that's a, you know, there's not many businesses where I'm like, oh, yeah, you had a really long haul to get there because, I mean, you know, yeah, to your point, like it took us a long time to get any kind of momentum moving in either direction. But then the, the specific challenge that I'm thinking about for your business is just like people are afraid of this topic. Like it's such a big problem. You know, it's almost like like they'd rather pretend it doesn't exist, which is, I mean, clearly it needs to be solved. And clearly there's a ton of value that can be unlocked by it. But it's not like, you know, it's just, it's complicated and it's hard to wrap your head around. And it's like, there's no like super, super clear path. I mean, I think what you're offering is, is compelling. And I think if you, I mean, the funny thing is there's so many things that we end up modeling after, you know, well, Google did this. So it's like, sure. you should do the same thing <laughs> Smart people, because it works. It's like, and they thought about it. Yeah. And it was like a, you know, there was a, like there was a battle of different ideas and like not, that wasn't the only thing that was tried to solve this problem at Google. Like there was probably five other different solutions that all lost out. And so, you know, there's like a marketplace for ideas there and like a battlefield of ideas where the, the top, you know, solution wins. So sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, so this is, this is great. I mean, and you know, I, I do laugh because I, I, you know, I was joking about like your, your cushy job as a venture capitalist, you know, and, and, you know, I clearly like, you know, love lots of my friends or VCs and they're very important partners of ours. But I'm guessing this has been uh, some of the more challenging parts of your career in terms of actually, you know, building this business and getting this moving. Is that right? Yes, hard work. I mean, you know, although I think maybe I may, maybe I approach things uh, in a hard way. I wasn't coasting as a VC, I guess, during that phase of my career. I was, uh, I was hustling. I was hustling, but it was a different set of muscles. Well, you were also building, I would say, like you were a little ahead of the curve then too. Like the things that you were, if you were investing in those things now, you would be like just constantly filled with deals and everyone would love every, every deal you were doing because it's like, you know, the thesis has really proven out. And so... Uh, I mean, you see it with all the IPOs that have happened recently. So you were maybe you just like to yeah to to take things on before uh, before everybody else realizes how how crucial they are. So the triumph of the nerds. I, I love this uh, <laughs> pattern. Uh, I see it. I see it re- repeated in history. And uh, yeah, I can support that one. So this problem you're talking about, I do feel like people have long tried to say like. This is where, you know, building some type of coin or crypto protocol or other thing, it's like now we're calling it Web3, might actually pay the creators to build the projects and things. Like, I mean, do you have a, a thesis on that? Do you think it's like part of the solution at some point? Something you thought about? I mean, I'm just curious. I think it's really interesting. I mean, I have spent time and energy sort of exploring that. And by the way, there are some existing efforts that are, I believe, uh, showing some success on that front, especially around, you know, crypto projects. Mm, sure. uh, you know, I think there's some some good examples, which naturally is where that would start. Basically, I think all let's go back to that marketplace of ideas that you had. Let's try everything, right? Like yeah. there's a bunch of complementary things that we can do. This is a really important problem for us to solve because our 
civilization is built on technology and a bunch of open source libraries. I mean, everybody knows this famous XKCD webcomic with, uh, by now with like all of modern technology or something like that sitting on top of a random package that some guy, somebody in uh, Nebraska has been maintaining thanklessly since 2003. Yeah. We know it. We know it's there. So let's go after this problem. I mean, this week it was Log4j was the thankless maintainers, uh, unthanked maintainers, I should say. And uh, so let's go after it with Tidelift. Let's go after it with, sure, you know, novel payments <laughs> approaches, micro payments, if it can work. Let's go after it with direct sponsorships of you know, open source maintainers on platforms. Some people argue big companies should hire the open source maintainers and make them full-time salaried employees. Great, let's do that as well. Let's try all of these things. Probably the answer is some mix of them. I think that Tidelift is, to your point, has been a hard to get started one, but is now demonstrating the power of, uh, you know, undertaking that effort. Um, so I think we're making, we're already making a meaningful contribution but we're not going to solve this problem with one approach or one company or or one team. You know, this is really important for again, not even just the technology industry or vendors to to focus on. This is important for our society. This is why it's on the front page of the Washington Post, why the White House is making executive orders about this kind of stuff. You know, it's why I couldn't pay uh, my parking meter uh, in the town next door when their system was out because they were patching their log4j vulnerability last weekend. Oh wow! It, it impacts real life. You know, we got to take this stuff seriously. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's, I mean, to realistically, that's like your answer is the most sort of perfect open source answer, which is like, well, like the community will figure it out and we'll take different approaches and like, we'll all, we'll, we'll get there. And, you know, that's the, that's the point. When you started Tidelift though, I felt like it was much more like, was there always a clear vision around what the product product would be or was it? Because like, my, you know, this is when I, I reversed back five years ago. I definitely remember the community aspect. I don't remember as much of the tooling and sort of the like, you know, the the sort of enterprise tooling around this. So like, was that always part of the vision? It's just like, you know, the the way that you started was like, hey, we're gonna we, we need to get the software or the open source developers on first. Yeah. Well, so I think the um, the idea of tooling has always been present from the beginning. That's how we would convey it in a form where organizations can consume it. Right, um, mm. that work that's happening, and, and and actually put it to work and derive value from it, and that's thus be motivated to pay for value that they receive. The details of it, though, have been hard hard won. It's just it's enterprise software development, right? Like no plan survives contact with the enemy, as they say, right? You have these grand ideas of sure. what the software is going to look like, the UIs are going to look like, the um, the user experience, and so it's another aspect of the business that. I don't know a way to shortcut this aspect of building a enterprise software business or probably most kinds of businesses. You have to get out there and just start doing it. And so, you know, we have had some great learnings as we've gone along. I would say a core, you know, kind of principle that is well known, but well advised is simplify, right? Like make it as simple as possible for people to understand what's going on and to actually interact with it. And so, you know, an example of that from our product journey would be, you know, initially we had the the idea of this universe of open source components that we were ver- working with the maintainers to verify they meet these objective standards. And then we had like your organization's universe of salt, whatever you happen to be using. And then we had sort of this, we called it a, a alignment score, like how aligned are you to the verified versions? And it was kind of too complicated to understand, right? So a simplification that we 
kind of discovered in our conversations along the way is let's simplify the problem by just saying, we're going to create a list of components that are in use in your organization and tell you whether they are healthy or not. So that's called the um, your catalog, your organization's catalog. It's sort of fed with information from our universe of maintainers mm. and also your things. And then we just give you a Rather than talking about like abstract things around, you know, alignment and how far behind the versions you are, we just give you a straight number. And we actually just have recently shipped the uh, an enhanced version of this we call Project Health that just looks at your application and it says, we're just going to give you a bottom line score based on the open source components that are flowing into it. You are what you eat. Your application is what it's made out of. Here's the health score. And, you know, that health score changes over time. When there's a new security vulnerability, if your application has a is you know incorporating a version of log4j that is not patched your health score just went way down suddenly yeah and so our tooling kind of throws a spotlight on that and says hey here's what you need to do to make the biggest impact to restore your and improve your your project health score so it's it's like creating simplifying concepts and it's removing as many steps as possible <laughs> in the use of the software i guess those are perennial uh you know perennial wisdom for anybody building a software product probably for any audience. Yeah, which is, uh, change is hard for enterprise software too, because you're like, someone will be like, I loved that thing. And you're like, well, we got rid of it because no one else understood it, right? So you have to be kind of... Yeah, that's that's why Log4J still had the JNDI interface in it, because somebody loved that ability to load uh, <laughs> code <laughs> through their LDAP server. <laughs> that's exactly it. You know, and I'm just sort of, you know, tr- trying to figure out like, you know, what other, like you've clearly had a very long and in, in sort of, uh, successful relationship in open source, like what other patterns or frameworks or paradigms have like sort of stuck out to you? Where you're like, hey, when I look at an open source business, you know, I always look for these things, or this is the stuff that I think is going to help them be successful, or here's the you know transitions I try to help people think about. Like, what what are some of those key insights? Yeah, I mean, I think just my personal point of view on this is that it's I focus less on the businesses in open source and more on the communities. I think that's the source of the energy and the where it comes from. So I, I think in terms of the attributes of those of those communities and you know there's a bunch of those are human ecologies, right? Right. And so, you know, I look at things like, you know, who's participating there? Is it just um, you know, are the end users an important voice and, and participant in those communities? You know, I mentioned a couple of the sort of scientific computing and data science communities that I've been adjacent to in my travels, those are examples of communities where it's it's not like vendors just team things up. It's like the end users are technical users and they build libraries to do things like, you know, in applied domains like um, astrophysics or um, biology. And they're co-creating the overall ecosystem. Now, that's a really, really interesting dynamic when you have users who are also creators like that. Of course, there's things like um, how centralized or single organization dominated a a, a community is just like in real world ecologies you know diverse open source communities are more robust to all kinds of different threats you know either political threats like you know a vendor sort of taking over and i don't know relicensing the uh, code uh, to serve their commercial interests when there's a shared ownership or shared governance communities will, uh, and open source projects will be more resilient against that. But also things like security bugs, right? To have different people with different 
perspectives, use cases, personal backgrounds looking at the same code, they'll see different things. They'll take a different approach to how they investigate things, maybe apply different tools or different methodologies to looking for um, potential issues and heading them off ahead of time. So it's those kind of, uh, I think the bottom line there is diverse open source communities and sub-communities that have active involvement from their end users and participation in the co-creation that's the jackpot. When I when I see that, I can't help but try to show up and find a way to help. And you know, with Tidelift, we're trying to do that for a bunch of communities like that. Right. You know, there's communities like that in the JavaScript ecosystem, in the .NET ecosystem, in Go, and in the Python ecosystem. And so we're trying to provide a little bit of a, ge- a general umbrella where sub-communities like that can thrive. And boy, I just think it's like one of the most interesting things to emerge from the internet is that humans will get together and self-organized to create things like this and to work on projects like this who wouldn't want to support that and find ways to amplify it yeah i mean you know i, I kind of have a, there's a couple other sort of random ideas that just came to mind around this which is like in you know i'm, I'm, one, I'm sure you've thought about them, that's why i wouldn't run them by you but like things just around you know tidelift feels like it's in a good position where like there are lots of companies out there that have great engineers and we want to give back and want to contribute So, like even just, you know, helping to identify, Hey, here are the software projects that like need your help. And, you know, co- like in, and if you, if you think about like a, you know, a free version of Tidelift that looks at my stack and says, Hey, look, like you're using all the, you know, you, these are actually core dependencies and these are projects that don't really have like super active communities or maintainers. Like, you know, here's have somebody get involved, right? Like that would be really interesting as ways to, to think about making contributions you know, I, it feels like there's and clearly there's lots of different solutions to this stuff, but like some idea of almost like a Tidelift job board, right? Where it's like just you know you see all these great folks that are that are making contributions to projects. It's like they're probably you know I would I would happily employ those folks at Replicated while they still maintain that project and get paid you know some amount of side hustle money from Tidelift, but also you know get to work on software here and use some of their time had replicated to contribute that project, right? So there there's feels like there's there's lots of ways where like your insights could be super, super helpful in solving this problem. So really cool. I love those ideas. I mean on the first one we do we do a version of that already. So like when we onboard a customer, we inventory their um, open source projects that they're using today. And if we don't have partnered maintainers helping us ensure the the standards that those packages meet we'll actively reach out to open source maintainers. That's how we identify who we should sort of prioritize to try to onboard going forward. So it's a cool way to do it because it, it directly aligns our community, open source maintainer community engagement with value received by our customers. So it sort of amplifies the thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love the, I love the idea. There's a lot, there's a lot of things. Once you have some of this basic infrastructure and you fight through the, um, two-sided marketplace activation and get that flywheel going. There's a lot of stuff that you can build on top of it that's kind of good for everybody. Uh, and these yeah. are a couple of good examples. Um, and so that's, uh, yeah, it's gratifying to have the opportunity to uh, to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's also just like a, you know, as terrible as things like Log4j are, like it's great that there's some amount of like more more attention and visibility going to this, this problem, right? So, you know, I think it's, it was sort of inevitable, and this is probably part of the overall thesis for you. Or like, look, eventually this stuff is going to like, you know, be the fire that everyone has to put out. And so, 
you know, if you build in that direction, you kind of have that hypothesis and you stay alive long enough, which is like the key thing for, I think that's one of the hardest things for category creation and like, is just like stay alive long enough until like everybody realizes that there's value there. So you've done that thus far. Good, good, good work. Oh, thank you. Yeah. One, one way that we have reacted to Log4j is, you know, never let a crisis go to waste, I think is another sure. uh, catchphrase. I'm not sure who attributed yeah. it to, but you know, it, it's, it's actually a bummer that you know this happened. I mean, it's a bummer for a lot of people for the open source maintainers. It's not been a fun week, you know, for a lot of people lost their last weekend, maybe this weekend, the week in between, derailed and you know patching things. But on the other hand, it's sort of a call to call to action, right? Like it happened, like you know, uh, and it happened big this time, and it's going to happen again. Yeah. So let's you know think ahead. I mean, there's other. Other things going on in the world that maybe match this pattern as well. You know, people <laughs> said it might happen. We didn't, weren't really prepared. Something happened. Let's not just deal with the issue, but let's also try to get ahead of it next time. And so, you know, I think if we do that, if we respond in a, in a mature way, deal with, you know, we got to clean up log for shell right now, but then let's not forget about it and set ourselves up to, to have a, you know, another one come whenever it comes. Let's figure out a better way to, for everybody to work together that benefits everybody. That's our perspective on it. Yeah, put out the fire and then uh, and then build some you know sprinkler systems in. Exactly. Yeah, maybe we should have a fire department. Yeah, have a fire yeah. department. Yeah, exactly. Or or <laughs> take out all the highly flammable things. Yeah, lots of ways to approach it. Let's do all of them. <laughs> Amazing, Donald. Thank you so much for joining. This was a, a ton of fun. You know, I, I appreciate you allowing me to badger you with questions about Red Hat and trying to, you know, pierce your memory from 13 years ago, and then and then diving in on uh, on on the modern problems you're solving at, at Tidelift. But I, I really do appreciate it. All good. Thanks, Grant, for the invitation, and uh, you know, really enjoyed it. Uh, it's a privilege to do this. It's a privilege to work with open source uh, communities and to have gone on this journey. So uh, happy to uh, talk about it and share any. Any findings uh, to date uh, that might be useful for others who are uh, trying to get enterprise ready on their own? Yeah, and when if people are trying to find you, where should they where should they find you? Uh, you can find me tidelift.com is a good place. Two words, uh, and you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is dff. Cool, Donald. Thanks again. Thanks, Grant. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to the largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.